So I wonder how you're all doing after uh, charades for this afternoon and various teaching and a lot of interesting role-playing and quite dramatic for some of you doing the teaching instructions of ballet and kickboxing and... <laughs> so how, how are you settling back in? Let's just shout out a word. How, how's it going out there? Good? Yeah? Some wobbles? How many people are feeling some wobbles in their meditation practice from this afternoon? Okay, good half of you. How many people is just unbroken, seamless mindfulness <laughs> just sailing out into the sunset? Okay, not too many hands. <laughs> yeah. So, well, it's all part of practice, right? You know, uh, just as was spoken here very eloquently at the beginning about what came up in just that turning towards and interacting. And um, it's the richest, one of the richest parts of our practice is how we relate, how we engage, how we communicate, and all the stuff. I'm going to talk more about that tomorrow afternoon, about the internal stuff, the, the fears and the identity issues and the judgments and the needing to be liked and all the stuff that goes on, not just in ordinary human dynamics, but also in the teaching world sometimes accentuated. So, um, well, I'm glad you, you seem quite settled in, actually. Uh, maybe it's just a delusion. Maybe it's just you, you, you're good at looking good, you know. <laughs> Comes with practice from teaching. And you're white-knuckling on the freeway, getting to the car, I'm going to get the class on time, and then you, okay, now it's time for mindfulness meditation. <laughs> I haven't done that. That's what I've heard, you know. <laughs> I get stuck on the, tr- on the 101 northbound coming here every week. I teach here once or twice a week, and every week I hit traffic. <laughs> oh, traffic, my favorite friend. <laughs> hmm. So tonight, when it's slightly shiftier somewhat, although it's in some ways seamless part of practice, and to talk about the role and the practice and the quality of compassion, both as a, a quality, how we develop that, but also in the teaching role. Because probably the main reason your students are coming to your class, if they haven't been mandated by you know, the school authority or HR or something, is because they're wanting some solace, they're wanting some refuge, they're wanting some... Uh, way to work with their mind, their physical pain, their mental anguish, their suffering, their losses, their bereavement. And so it's essential that we do our own work, uh, working with our own struggles, our own challenges, sorrows, uh, difficulties. Because, of course, just like with any aspect of practice, the more that we do our own work, the more that we metabolize our own challenges and look at our own difficulties with awareness and kindness, of course, then, then we have that facility, that, that confidence and that skill to share with others. That's really the, the, always the primary basis of our practice, not from studying our books, not from listening to talks, but actually doing the nitty-gritty work of facing our own uh, humanity, facing our own existential struggle, facing our own um, aloneness, 
So I want to speak to elements of that this evening, and we'll no doubt be touching on it uh, as we go through the retreat. So I'd like to share this story that to me uh, speaks to the ordinariness of compassion. And really, that's really what, what interests me is the ordinary day-to-day way we, we show up in our lives, in our meetings with strangers, in the way that we treat each other, talk to each other, and the unexpected events that happen in our lives. How do we meet that? Just as we're meeting every moment here with as much presence, how do we meet each other with that same presence? And so this story uh, is a nice example of that. So it's about a taxi driver, and he's uh, just about to end his shift. And he says, I arrived at the address and honked the horn. After waiting a few minutes, I honked again. Since this was going to be my last ride of my shift, I thought about not driving away, but instead I put the car in park and walked up to the door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened and a small woman in her 90s stood Before me, she was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it. To her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab, then I returned to assist the woman. When we got to the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, Could you drive through downtown on the way? Well, it's not the shortest way, I answered her. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. I looked at the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she said in a quiet voice. The doctor says I don't have very long to live. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she'd danced as a kid. Sometimes she'd ask me to slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness saying nothing. At the first hint of sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired now, can we go? We drove in silence to the address she'd given me. It was a low building like a small convalescent home. Two orderlies came out as the cab, as, as the cab pulled up. I opened the trunk, took the suitcase to the door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held onto me tight. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and walked out into the morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of a passing of a life. I didn't pick up any passages that, that shift. Anymore, I drove aimlessly lost in thought for the rest of the day. I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver? Or one who who was insistent to end his shift? What if I'd refused to take the the run or had honked once and driven away? On a quick review, I don't think I've done anything more important in my life. I've read that story a lot, and every time I read it, I'm so touched, I'm so moved by that, that kindness and the vulnerability, you know, which we all are living in, you know, whether we know it or not. 
And what I, what I appreciate about that story is it's just someone showing up with presence, just like we did today, with kindness, with awareness. He had to have a sufficient presence of mind to take in this person, her dilemma, and to respond with in a heartful way. It's a beautiful expression of the, you know, and as I say in, in a mature practice, the, our awareness, mindfulness practice, and the heart practices of love and compassion, they become one. They're not two separate things. So here we are at Spirit Rock, uh, ensconced in the Buddhist tradition, learning about mindfulness. And I always think back to how these practices and teachings started 25, 2600 years ago. And they started out of the Buddha's realization, understanding suffering and the causes of suffering and freedom and the way to realize that. But they really started not just from his realization, but what that moved in him, which is to share it. Because he kind of had a realization and gone and had a quiet life in the forest and, you know, been in blissful, enlightened retirement. But he didn't choose that. He chose because he saw how much suffering the human beings create for each other. And he saw the path through that maya that he spent the next 45 years sharing that. Sometimes tirelessly, sometimes with a lot of hostility from different sects and teachers and even his cousin who tried to kill him. Um, and so I feel that like the, 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 birth, the birth spring of, of these teachings comes from compassion. In fact, when the Buddha died, um, Ananda, who was his trusted attendant and cousin for many, many, many years, um, was, was found crying distraught in the woods. And um, he was found to be muttering to himself, oh, he who was so kind, he who was so kind. So all the things he could have said about the Buddha, about being wise and clear and awakened and all that, he said, no, he who was so kind. The expression of that awakening is kindness. The expression of our understanding is compassion. And so everything that we do here in meditation, on retreat, in our practice, really is a practice of compassion because it's all oriented towards relieving suffering in some form or other. So I was on retreat uh, teaching a couple of years ago, maybe last year, and there was a woman, she recounted this story in a group. She was sweeping uh, in the kitchen and uh, she was getting really tense and uptight about the sweeping. And uh, she began to get curious, like, what's up? I'm just sweeping. It's not a big deal. Sweeping the kitchen. It's not a stressful job. Um, And so she began to inquire, and she had a memory that came, as often does when we're present and we're we're tuned in. She had a memory when she was about four or five years old when her younger sister died suddenly. And um, from that point on, she felt like she lost her childhood. She was given a lot of responsibility around the house um, and uh, since that time had a lot of grief around losing the playfulness of her childhood. So the, the, the association with the broom and sweeping and doing a kitchen chore just took her back to that time as a child when that responsibilities were burdened on her. And through the practice of awareness and mindfulness, 
she was able to hold that experience and, and allow a lot of grief to move through with that kind attention. So something as very simple as doing a work meditation, you know, anything is a vehicle for understanding ourselves, is a vehicle for, for insight, a vehicle for compassion. So as I th- think Bob framed the, the teachings on the other day, um, talking about the Four Noble Truths, which is really where all of these teachings are, you have their foundation. The first, of course, being the truth of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness. And I'm wondering if anybody has escaped that here. Has anybody escaped that truth? No, it's part of our human experience. Right? No matter how privileged, no matter how luxurious, it's part of the human condition. We get old, we get sick, we experience loss, we experience fear or loneliness, existential angst. Not getting what you want, the Buddha said. Anybody not get what they want? Getting what you don't want. Anybody get that? Plenty of that. Right? On retreat, plenty of knee ache and boredom and sleepiness. I want to be awake and I keep falling asleep. You know? Losing what you have. Anybody not lost what they have? I mean, sometimes you want to lose things like weight or you know, stress, but mostly we have a lot of pain around losing what we have. We're losing age, losing vitality, losing loved ones. Losing confidence, losing accomplishments. Being separated from that which you love, another aspect of suffering. Being separated from ourselves, being separated from our true nature, being separated from loved ones. There's many different ways. I don't need to run the the, the gamut of suffering because you know it all too well. You've got PhDs in it. But... um, that's what we're facing and that's what we're working with in our students. That's why they come, as I said. So there's this lovely line that I, I don't know where it comes from, but I, I, I hold it a lot as I move through my day. It says, be kind to every person you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. Each person is asked to be carrying great burden. You look around the room, everyone's meditating. Someone said this in the group the other day. You know, I came in late and everyone just looks like they're Buddhas and they've all got it down and you know, no distractions, no hindrances. Right? It looks good on the outside, but we know that you don't get through this life without a burden or two or many. Right? So if we just scratch a little deeper, look a little deeper, we see, oh yeah, we're in this together. This is actually what binds us. Yeah? This human uh, travail. And of course, these teachings of awareness, compassion, provide the good news. There is, there is relief from this turmoil, from this assault. We can't free ourselves from aging, sickness, and death, but we can free ourselves in relationship to it. We can have a wise, compassionate relationship where we, where we unbind ourselves from a, so much of the psychological and mental suffering that comes in relationship to those things, the fear, the anxiety, the futurizing, the catastrophizing, the stories, the deficiency stories, all the different ways that we relate to experience adding to that burden. And that's what comes with insight, with clarity. That's why we do this difficult work. That's why we sit through the swamp for several days. Because we get clarity, we get understanding, it opens our hearts. 
And it comes down so much to how we relate to experience, the attitude in which we meet ourselves, each other, the moment, our pain, our sorrow, our loss, our fears, our anxieties. I had a bout of anxiety a couple of years ago. Out of the blue, I went on a, on a I, had, I, took, I took three months off to start a book project, and I went up to some extremely remote island in, in Canada, thinking I needed that to get away from, you know, cell phones and computer and, not computer, but uh, just the trance of busyness and being online and whatnot. And I went to this really isolated cabin and uh, it triggered some early memories, some trauma, history, and it was very difficult, very painful, and I was really in the middle of nowhere. It took two plane rides, two ferries, uh, a bus, a taxi and a shuttle to get there. <laughs> Why I thought I had to go that far to write a damn book. <laughs> I can write in my backyard, I mean, really. That's where I wrote my last book. Um, <laughs> anyhow, it was very traumatic, and it triggered a deep, deep layers of anxiety. And uh, those of you who experience anxiety, it's, it's, it's one of the harder things to be with. Because the nature of it is, it, it's hard to settle into it. It just it gets, keeps the, the nervous system so jangled. And so, you know, so I came back home, which was the wisest thing to do, come out of isolation, which was triggering the anxiety. And, uh, and I worked with it, and I sat with it, and I meditated with it, and I loved it, and I, you know, did whatever you do with, with, you know, with, your, with your inner work. And it didn't go away. And this is after a week, after two weeks, after a month, two months, like, wow, this is really relentless. And so all my strategies ran out, right? We, we, as, as a meditator, as a long-term meditator, you get very skilled. You know, I'll just, you know, if I just, <laughs> if I get into deep enough samadhi, if I meta it away, you know, if I compassion blast it, if I, you know... <laughs> and, you know, at some point reality will say, you know stop that. Like, this is not what it's about. It's about being, meeting your experience as it is naked, real time, in a, in a fearless way. Right? Surrendered, really, is what it, what it does. Life will, will force us, whether it's our chronic health condition, bereavement, our own psychology, will at some point force us to have to surrender to the way things are and to not fight, and to not bargain, to not have an agenda. And so, um, and what I learned as, as I'm a slow learner, <laughs> which I kn- I've known, because I've, I've been through these layers before, working with early trauma, is that um, I just had to soften into and meet it with love. Unconditional love, right? Metta is unconditional kindness, which means without condition. <laughs> which means without agenda, <laughs> which means without wanting to go away. If this stays around forever, I'm going to stay soft in my heart and loving. Right? It's not easy to do when your system is jacked up with anxiety. But that's, that's, what, that's what was asked. It was a beautiful practice. I would wake up and there would be the anxiety and then, okay, this is my, this is my friend. This is my practice or this is however long this stays. May I be well, may I, may I meet this with kindness. So compassion is this turning into 
our suffering, turning into another's pain, feeling with compassion, to suffer with, to, to let it in, the world's pain, the earth's pain, another's pain, a child's pain, a student's pain, to feel it, to be with, to be fearless with it. Not easy to do. And if we haven't done our work, of course, what we can't face in ourselves, we won't be able to really hold so skillfully in, in our students. We'll be able to do something, but we won't be able to fully be there with a courageous heart because we haven't done that work. And then when we do that work, what I notice is that heart becomes more available and more spontaneous. Like when I'm listening to stories as a teacher here on retreat, in groups and in one-on-ones, the tears are right there behind my eyes. Like when I'm hearing people's stories and their struggles and their losses and and even just a moment of of insight of overcoming a, a little struggle. Like I just so, it's the, the heart's just so there because I, you know, I, can, I can empathize with that struggle. Right? We're all in this together. And then, then we become more responsive to suffering around us. We see it more. We're not afraid of it. We don't avoid it. So this is a story um, about the responsiveness of uh, suffering. So responding to suffering. So this woman, um, she's been out of work for a couple of years. She has multiple health issues, has little money, um, is having trouble finding a job. And one night she's waiting for a bus. It's cold, um, San Francisco. And this woman comes up to her and uh, it's cold outside. It's a freezing cold night. And uh, this woman comes up to her. She had uh, only a t-shirt and uh, flip-flops, wearing several hospital bracelets. And she said, I asked her a name and if she had a coat or anywhere to go. And she quickly told me she'd lost her apartment because she'd lost her job and then got very sick and was put in hospital. She had no family in the area and didn't know where she was going to sleep that night. And so I dug in my purse and took out some bus tickets and $5 so she could get something to eat. I then took off my jacket and tennis shoes and gave them to her. I said, these are a little big, but they're going to keep you warm. She looked at me and said, aren't you going to be cold? I said, I told her me being cold for 15 minutes until I get to my place is worth it if I know you will be a little warmer for wherever you end up. She cried and thanked me with a hug. I just told her to pass it on. Then after I got on the bus, that's when the miracle of spreading kindness happened. I stepped up to pay the fare and the bus driver says, Ma'am, I saw what you just did and your fare is on me, even though technically we aren't supposed to let you on the bus without shoes, <laughs> he said with a wink. I went to sit down and this lady who was dressed in a very professional business suit calls me over to a seat and says, I want to know the name of the person who just did the most um, inspiring thing I've ever seen. I told her my name and said, and she's like, well, what can I do for you to give back what, what I just witnessed? I jokingly said a paying job would be nice. She said I might be able to work something out. She worked in HR for a big company. She calls her the next day and ends up getting a part-time job. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is the spontaneity. This is not, this is not doing it for getting something in return. <laughs> Even though... <laughs> I'll delete that part of the story next time. <laughs> Even though, you know, the, the heart, when the heart's... When the heart's open, it responds. That's the movement of compassion. It's not just a feeling. It's different than empathy. It's actually, it's a movement. It's a verb to move, to act, to, to relieve in some form the suffering of others. 
And just like the practice that I led the other day about um, and not paying attention and pointing us to the innate quality of awareness that's the innate quality of the mind, the qualities of compassion and kindness are also innate within us. We, we're born with these qualities. They're part of the fabric of the heart. The heart wants life to be well. When the heart gets damaged, when it gets hurt, when it gets shut down and numbed out, then it's less available. As a f- good friend of mine, Jack, um, who works, who the founder, founder of the Insight Prison Project, works with uh, lifers in San Quentin. Um, he was leading a group, and there was a, a, a he pairs people up, older and younger inmate, uh, as a mentoring relationship. And there was a new inmate came in, and they were having a dialogue about about experience and pain and suffering and working with the challenges. And the young inmate said, um, his forward, forward sharing was hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. And his mentor said, healed people, heal people. Healed people, heal people. Right? The heart, when it's hurt, hurts both inwardly and outwardly. There's this beautiful story um, by um, the researcher Roger Futz, who's done uh, decades of research with um, uh, bonobo chimps and uh, who are much much less aggressive than other uh, uh, primates and um, uh, some beautiful understandings about their the social structure and their benevolent nature and their naturally inclusive caring nature. And so um, he was studied for a long time, this um, chimp called Washo, who was quite well known. He was the first chimp to learn American Sign Language. And uh, he was, uh, when they just had a, a new um, set of um, primates into the into the the research center, uh, one of them uh, escaped and was drowning in, in the moat around the center and Washoe jumped over a very um, high, uh, dangerous uh, electric fence to rescue the chimps, even though chimps hate water, despise water. But that's that movement of spontaneous compassion, risking being hurt by the fence, risking drowning and hating water. Um, and there's a story he tells where... Um, they developed very close relationships with their researchers and the researcher that was working with Washo um, had recently uh, lost her baby. And uh, so she was telling Washo about it and Washo's response was, first he did the, he did the sign language for cry um, and chimps don't cry, they don't have tears but he knew the sign language for humans crying. And then he traced a tear on his cheek of, of where, where tears would run on a human being's face. And then he signed three words, um, please, person, hug. Please, person, hug. And this, is in a, this is in a chimpanzee, beautiful expression. So another great Dharma teacher, Gary Larson, puts it this way in this lovely cartoon um, where we're in hell, the fiery dens of hell, and sh- Satan's shouting to his, to his mom, no, mom, no, stop that. And underneath the caption says, uh, Satan 
Despite his repeated efforts to dissuade her, Satan could never stop his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> and so there's a picture of a, of a new recruit into hell, and she's got their little tray of cookies and milk, a little penny of horns and tail. <laughs> so, so the practice of compassion starts, like all practices at home, starts with self-compassion, starts with how we meet our experience. Krista Neff, as I'm sure many of you know, is a researcher, has been studying self-compassion for the last two decades, We've done some wonderful research, written a beautiful book called Self-Compassion, highly recommended if you haven't uh, looked at it. It's a good uh, overview of the, the field. And um, she, has, she says there are three um, primary foundations for uh, self-compassion, which really dovetail with our practice. The first is the ability to face rather than avoid painful feelings and thoughts, which is why this is the attitude of mindfulness turning into our experience. The second is recognizing that pain and failure are unavoidable aspects of the shared human experience. So recognizing dukkha, recognizing the first noble truth, there is suffering. And lastly, to bring, to bring, kind and un- bring kindness of being kind and understanding to oneself in instances of suffering or perceived inadequacy rather than self-judgment. So bring forth that, forth that kind heartedness. So I have another story for you. This is storytelling time talk, this, this talk for some reason. If I can find this talk, this story. So um, uh, there's a man is in a supermarket. He's observing... Uh, uh, this woman uh, with her young daughter in the cart, shopping cart. And, you know, as for any parent, you know, that's a traumatic experience uh, going around the shopping aisles. And the, and the three-year-old girl is every time she goes past the candy aisle or the, the, the cookie aisle, wants, wants the cookies. And when told, no, we're not going to have any cookies, of course, the, the uh, child wails and complains. And, and the mom says... Um, now, Monica, we just have half the hours left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long. And then she carries on. And then they pass the, uh, the soda aisle. And, um, and when told again that she wasn't going to have any soda, the, the kid has a tantrum, wails and screams. And, and the mom says, now, Monica, don't cry. Only two more hours to go. Then we'll be checking out. They get the checkout line. Of course, there's all the bubble gum, candy, and chocolate. And, and when told again that she's not going to have any candy, she has another meltdown. And, Monica sa- and, and the mother says, Monica, we'll be through the checkout stand in five minutes. Then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out of the store, so impressed by this mother's equanimity. And he says, I can't believe how you know, gracious you were with your daughter, uh, little Monica. And he began uh, whereupon the mother said, what do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. <laughs> so this is where we need the compassion, right? We're the one who's suffering often, you know, whether it's dealing with our kid having a tantrum, our partner freaking out, being in traffic, our students mad with us, you know, many situations that we're having a hard time. And we often forget that. What we do, we usually judge it. We blame, we're, we're reactive. Oh my God, you're supposed to be a mindfulness teacher. Look, you're pathetic, you're reacting, you're lost, you're cool, you know, you're angry, you're flipping off the other drivers, you know. <laughs> Get it together. You know? But we're human. Right? We have, we're, compassion is meeting our humanness. 
as it is. And we get vulnerable and scared and reactive and afraid and angry and fearful. No matter what we do, no matter how long we've been teaching or meditating, it's called being human. It's not what happened, it's how we meet what happens. Often anger flashes within you know, a few milliseconds and there's no way sometimes to interrupt that. But what do we do when the rage is flying? How do we meet ourselves? How do we meet ourselves when that subsides and we feel embarrassment or shame because we let it rip in front of the kids? We don't need more judgment and shame. We need compassion. We need understanding. <clears throat> so we'll do a little work tomorrow in the seminar with the critic, but as a precursor to that, uh, this is a cartoon that I like to share from Rhymes with Oranges, which is a lovely cartoonist, and is called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic, which you may notice in meditation. Choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. So we did that in meditation. You probably found the perfect meditator, right? Who just sits beautifully and walks like a Buddha. And you're like, <clears throat> could they just go for thirds or something at dinner? Like, can we just, you know. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. We live, and this is a popular meditation one, we live embarrassing moments and awful moments that occurred years ago. How much do we we just review those painful scenarios? Complete setup for suffering. Take a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. (laughs) Especially the people who share your last name. (laughs) Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. So there's a a caption of a a woman getting a compliment. Uh, He looked great. And she's thinking, I love you. I uh, know she's thinking. Uh, don't pa- pa- no. He's say- he's the person saying I love you look great, and she's saying don't patronize me. <laughs> and lastly, um, it says, resign yourself to believing that from now on this is how you'll always feel. <laughs> Another great meditation trap. Right? Just as you thought in day one, swamp, oh my God, this re- retreat's going to be a complete swamp retreat. Why did I sign up for a swamp retreat? Didn't they, didn't they put that in the description somewhere? I would have, I would have seen that. Right? And we think, and it's like, oh my, and we get so depressed because, like, oh my God, this is my only week off for the year and I've been working so hard. And, oh God, I hate swamp. And you wake up on day two, it's like, oh, la, 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 it's spring. Oh, I feel great. Right? What a lot of suffering right? when we bring in the future and we believe that reality. So life requires a tenderness to meet ourselves, to meet where we are, to meet our struggles, to meet our crazy mind, to meet our ailing, aching, painful body, to meet our fears and losses. Even though here at Spirit Rock it's beautiful, we've got amazing food, beautiful people, great teachings, wonderful nature, right? There's still a lot of Anybody not suffering here this week? Right? No, it's the, the human condition. Right? Even though the conditions are beautiful, the inner life is challenging. And so even though we long for those juicy, calm, peaceful, blissful retreats, they're actually not where we do our, our deepest work. We do our work, just look back at your life, look at where you've grown, look at where you've done your deepest transformation. It's in those places of fear and loneliness and loss 
and, uh, and, and grief, right? where we've had to really face ourselves, face the difficulty, face our struggle, alone often. And we transform, we find a resilience, we find a strength, we find confidence, we find trust in our ability to show up. We find trust in our heart to hold our difficulty. And these are, these are tremendous uh, assets in our life. I think, back at my, I think back if I hadn't had these practices for 30 years, I'd be a mess. And my life would be so much harder because I wouldn't have the tools and the techniques and the learnings that I feel that the practice has given me. I feel tremendously grateful. This is a poem, beautiful poem from a poet called Roshani who speaks to the, the, the fortitude that comes from doing this work. She writes, There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is, a, there is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. So really, to, when I read this, I think, oh, this person knows the dark night. This person has gone on a dark journey, dark night of the soul, which is where we meet our face, meet ourselves at the bottom, naked. You know, I've walked that journey myself. I don't know who came up with the idea it was one night. <laughs> Dark year, dark few years, yes. Dark night, you got off light. (laughs) It's a dark blip. So, and of course we would never want to relive those dark nights, those dark years. But I look back on my own dark nights and those journeys with tremendous gratitude actually. And my, my descent came, I'd been practicing about 12 years and um, was like gung-ho for liberation. Like I was all about emptiness or bust, you know, enlightenment or bust. I was like meditating most of the year, long retreats, wherever I could get them, India, England, here, anywhere. And I was on my way to ordain in Burma, um, and uh, life had another plan for me, which I didn't know at the time. And I was in the middle of a long retreat and uh, was having, you know, having a great retreat. And, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, came this really intense uh, pain and, and sorrow and grief and trauma and just a whole uh, host of uh, really intense things that completely flattened me, completely took me in a different direction, but also completely blasted my heart open. Like what happened was there was nothing I could do to respond to that. It's like it ripped off the, the coldness or the hardness or the, or the veil or the coolness in my heart, which I'd had to myself and therefore to others to some degree. 
And um, even though I was flattened, what I was left with was awareness and compassion. I wasn't trying to be aware. I wasn't trying to be compassionate. I had no facility at that point to, to have that, to do that. But that was what was left out of, the, out of my practice for 12 years. And then since that time, the, that, that aspiration towards what I regard now as a transcendent, somewhat bypassed, cut-off awakening was really a limited view. And that my awakening really involved a descent, uh, just like Jack talks about coming out of the monkhood and going and descending through the chakras to be fully realized. That, that was my own path, would descend through the heart to, into suffering, into pain, to meet that fully. That was part of the healing that was part of the journey of wholeness. So I ask each of you how you meet your own struggle, how you meet your own burden, how you meet your own difficulty with with disdain with fear with rejection with coolness with kindness with curiosity with love it takes a lot of courage to go in there with a loving awareness so this is a poem i wrote uh, kind of about this turn and i really believe it's it's a turn that we that we at some point wake up to making it's called your only duty Your only duty is to try not to run from here, from this. Even if the hole of loss burns deep into your soft belly, even if on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day raw, stripped bare, and it feels like the wind will finally pierce those empty places that lay exposed within. You could always pretend, try putting on a face other than your own, try avoiding the whole damn thing, but that's a game that's never worked and only burns a deeper hole inside the pocket of longing. It makes the shell you've chosen to live in even more empty. But there comes a time when you embrace the starved parts of your being, and you touch the void you've spent a lifetime running from, with delicate hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree, without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fall into the ground. This is the first step that begins the slow journey of completeness, keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has been waiting, that is always right here. But it does require that we turn and not turn away, which is so easy to do. But as Ajahn Chah says, when we, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. There is no escape. It comes back full circle. So someone in the group today mentioned Darlene Cohen, who is a Zen teacher and a very courageous Zen teacher. She suffered from chronic pain and debilitating physical condition for, I think, some decades. Um, So she knew about this challenge and how to meet and how to show up and how to show up. So I want to share a piece of writing from hers about how we do this turn in a very embodied, visceral way. She says, People sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. How in the midst of this pain, this implacable, slow crippling, can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from my despair and my terror. It comes from the shadow. I dip down into that muck again and again and I'm flooded with its healing energy. Despite the renewed the renewal and vitality it gives me to face my deepest fears, I don't go willingly. 
when they call. I've been around that wheel a million times. First, I feel a despair, but I deny it for a few days. Then its tugs become more insistent in proportion to my resistance. Finally, it overwhelms me and pulls me down, kicking and screaming all the way. It's clear I'm caught, so at last I give up this reunion with the dark aspect of my adjustment to pain and loss. I give up to this reunion. Immediately the release begins. First peace and then the flood of vitality and healing energy. I can never just give up when, it first, when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with a happy ending, I would give up right away and just say, hey, take me, I'm yours, here. But I never can. I always resist. I guess that's why it's called despair and suffering. If you went willingly, it'd be called something like joy or purification. It's staring defeat and annihilation in the, in the face that's so terrifying. I must resist it until it overwhelms me, but I've come to trust it deeply. I've, it's enriched my life, informed my work, and taught me not to fear the dark. So that's a beautiful, that's this teaching from an elder who's done this work, who's walked this path. And then, you know, how amazing, how powerful she is as a teacher Right? She can, when someone walks in with chronic pain, with debilitating illness, with a life-threatening uh, diagnosis, she can be right there. Just as we all can when we've done our work. I feel like when I'm with my clients and my students, there's a sense of fearlessness because I felt like I've gone to the darkest places in, in my own being. And that's really what we can offer to our students. So a couple of things. Um, to ponder on, to look at what are the obstacles to your heart opening. Why is it, if it actually, you know, as the Dalai Lama says, if you want others to feel compassion, if you want others to feel happy, practice compassion. If you want to feel happy, practice compassion. Right? When, we, when we offer kindness and compassion, when we care, we feel good. It's hardwired into our nervous system. Right? We're designed like that. If it feels good, if it feels heartful and connecting, how come we don't live there? So we want to pay attention to the way the heart closes, the way the heart shuts down. Usually it shuts down out of fear, fear of being overwhelmed. I don't want to open to this person's pain, this student's suffering, because if I let it in, I'm just going to be swallowed. I've had five students today already that have been painful. I can't take another one. So we feel the limitation. We fear being overwhelmed. Mm. So the near enemy to compassion in the Brahma Vihara teachings and the Divine Abode teachings is pity. So pity is when we're holding at distance, at arm's length, a person's pain and going, yeah, that's terrible. That's really terrible for you over there. You know, I hope that fixes soon, you know, because I don't really want to be around it. Right? I mean, it has, it has, this is a great quote from Edward Frost. He says, pity will not set, will not set free others because pity does not feel others as part of oneself, right? We're not letting it in, but as foreign, separate, and unconnected. Pity, the near enemy, may masquerade well as compassion, but only compassion knows the pain so intimately as to be unable to rest until the other is free of it. That's the difference. So pity is at a distance, compassion, we let it in, and we want to move, we want to help in some way. Sometimes we shut down because we're just overloaded. We're just numbed out from the, 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 the overwhelm of suffering in, in the news, from the suffering of our world, suffering of our students. And we need to listen to that too. We need to know when to resource, when to come on retreat, when to nourish ourselves. So each one of us wants to, needs to look at our other, the, ways, the, the ways that we're afraid of uh, pain and we shut down and we avoid 
And then it, we actually, it's a lose-lose situation. So, so just noticing where you are right now, listening to the, these stories, these conversations about suffering, compassion, noticing what's happening in your heart, noticing where this manifests in your life, where this flows with certain students, where it gets blocked with others, where it's shut down to yourself but easy with others, quite common, to know where it would be an interesting developmental step for you. For many of us, it's turning towards ourselves with kindness and compassion. That's really where most of the work is because we're probably all very good at helping others for the most part. So in the, in the Buddhist tradition, this idea of com- the compassionate warrior, the bodhisattva, one who's dedicated their lives to relieving suffering is really considered one of the highest ideals of the human life one who dedicates themselves to helping, to relieving the pain of others. It's a beautiful aspiration. And some of you may have already taken that commitment to live your life in accordance to that. Um, the, the vow is to save all beings, to relieve the suffering of as many beings as possible, which sounds like a tall order. Sometimes it's hard, it feels hard to relieve our own suffering. And I want to read this piece from Adyashanti, um, Uh, who turns around this idea of what the bodhisattva is. He says, saving all beings is not something that you do. Saving all beings is a verb that you become. You become the saving of all beings. That is what you are. In that there is quite naturally the very spontaneous and effortless manifestation of love and compassion and wisdom and a dedication to the truth above all else. All beings is not, saving all beings is not what you do. It is a definition of who you are. So it becomes the orientation or the inclination as you move. Whether it's holding a door open, whether it's listening to a loved one's pain, whether it's holding yourself when you're feeling terror and loneliness, whether it's being in a class with students and staying late because someone uh, has, their son is suicidal and you're just there even though you're tired and exhausted and want everything but just to go home, you stay there because you can. Okay, so maybe that's enough words for tonight. I'll leave you with a couple of um, sayings. This is when I came across this yesterday from good English Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, who was an 18th century, um, very flamboyant politician. And uh, I thought this was really apropos for the work that we're all doing. Uh, It's really an aspect of compassion. He says, the greatest good that you can do for another is not just share your riches, but reveal to them their own. Reveal to them their own. That's really the true gift of a teacher. Not just sharing these great teachings, but helping them see it from within. Okay, let's sit for a moment. And in case this is sounding too high and mighty, um, the words from the Dalai Lama, if you don't want to do any good, just don't cause any problems. (laughs) 
He's always very practical. <laughs> Just don't cause any problems. <laughs> Maybe easier said than done. That's a whole other story. But I'm just sensing your heart, sensing what's here. Where does that aspiration to relieve the pain of oneself and others I'll leave you with the words from Chogyam Trungpa. He says, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that the heart is empty. If you search for the awakened heart, there is nothing but tenderness. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous compassion. This experience of compassion is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. Thank you for your practice and we'll have some walking and we'll come back at nine for a sit. Thanks. Maybe a little chanting too. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.